Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns, originally scheduled for December 12th. That's over eight weeks away from the time that we're recording this episode. It's now officially off. Kamaru Usman apparently needs more time to prepare. I'm Jeffrey Hoffman, and this is Nikki the G, Nicholas Sherlock, welcoming you to the eighth episode of the Fight Sport Focus podcast. Yeah, I'm kind of at a loss for these champions. I'm kind of over them fighting once a year. There needs to be a system put in place. Uh, you had texted me some very interesting ideas yeah. that, I, that I liked about yeah. it, but these champions need to fight two, three times a year. Like, this is insane. You're supposed to be at the top of the food chain. The whole point is to climb the mountain to get to you, and it becomes an endless wait list. And then we have all these plethora of fake interim titles. These interim titles, they're not real. It's an interim title. It's just you have, you're the placeholder. That's all you are. You're the bookmark. And these champions need to step up and start fighting. I mean, look, Drew McIntyre wrestles every Monday night on Raw and defends that <laughs> belt. Come hell or hot water. <laughs> all right. So uh, hear me out. And I want you to hear the full proposal before you give it a yay or a nay. Because I feel like. When I was pitching that idea for having ring boys for the female fights a couple episodes back, you didn't really give it a fair listen before shooting it down. So I'm going to need your full attention here. Well, I'll give you the full attention, but that answer is still no on the ring boys. I digress. So it seems like over the last couple of years, particularly uh, reigning UFC champions have been a little bit stingy with the opportunities to get a crack at their belt. Right. Uh, And then you got a, a, all these guys trying out multiple divisions, Cejudo, McGregor, DC. So it's really bogging down the top ranks of those divisions. So this is my proposal. From the day a title is either won or defended, if like for any reason whatsoever, it could be an injury or personal issues, maybe you want to try a different weight class, go for the champ champ, that's fine. But if for whatever reason, if the champ can't defend within six months, the belt should be stripped and a fight scheduled for the vacant title, right? That's, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, listen, how long do you think guys have in their primes, right? You, you got to have hundreds of factors that are all lined up simultaneously in order for you to compete against the best, in order for you to beat the best in the world, right? There's like hundreds of things that you have to be as good or better than anybody in the world that simultaneously And you got to be in the best shape physically, best shape mentally. You've got to be surrounded by the best people. You got to have the right mindset. You've got to be that hunger, that hungry. You've got to be that motivated. You've got to be free of injury yourself. And on top of all of that, you've got to be the right age because you can have all of those things. But if you're in your late 40s, when all of those things finally align up, you're not going to be able to compete against the best of the best. You're going to be able to beat 99% of the world, but you're not going to be able to beat the top 10% in the UFC, right? So all of that being said, you know, what I'm getting at is this, the window that a lot of guys have is so small to make that championship run. And you've got to have all those factors aligned. And it seems like a lot of guys, a lot of champions defending once a year or even less. And look, we can go through the divisions, Nick, you and I, 125 and 135, bogged down a little bit because Cejudo was bouncing back and forth. Okay, 145 is being defended a bunch. Uh, 155 uh, with uh, Khabib. It's going to be over two years with two defenses. Uh, 170, 
Tyron Woodley's whole tenure with the belt. Now, Kamaru Usman looks to be defending it more, and that's great. But this little, you know, now it's going to be he last fought in July. So it's looking like it might be eight, maybe nine months before the welterweight uh, titles defended again. I mean, it takes time to work to perfect those foot stomps. <laughs> oh, maybe he had uh, plantar fasciitis or something. Yeah, from- yeah, yeah. He got like turf toe or something. So, I mean, it takes time, man. Yeah, uh, 185 was bogged down uh, with Whitaker, right? Whitaker had yep. two or three injuries. Uh, he had the belt for years, and he defended it once or twice. Uh, so this keeps happening. And, and look, I get it. Uh, injuries are part of the sport. You can't control that. But if you look at the I mean, biggest... You had, you, had, you had the same thing earlier this year with Stipe, when Stipe was like, well, I'm busy being a fireman. Yeah, DC's going to have to wait. And DC had to wait, and that, that clogged up. The heavyweight for division. sure and that's fine if you want to be a firefighter and and if you get injured like injuries are part of the game maybe you need six months maybe you need eight months maybe you need a year that's fine but if we look at the the most successful sports league in the world right like the nfl right tom brady gets injured a week before the super bowl are they postponing the super bowl and say oh we'll do it in three months let's let tom give tom some time to recover hell no right the game goes on and i i don't think that we're asking too much uh, not just in mixed martial arts, it could just be the UFC in general, just like the Super Bowl. Okay, at this time, this trophy is being competed for. And if you're healthy and ready for it, great. And if not, somebody else can step up. Yep. I don't think that we're asking that much to say, okay, by this time, that belt needs to be defended. If you can do it, great. If not, somebody else can step up. Yeah, I, I, I think that a good time frame is at least once every five, six months, you have yep. to defend your belt. That's more than enough time to get ready. And besides the fact, most of these guys that are UFC champions, Outside of maybe Stipe, this is their full-time job. Fighting is what they do. They're already training full-time, so you yeah. should always be ready to go, which I think that goes also to that then we should also make it same-day weigh-in so that we don't have to worry about weight cuts yeah, and weight sure. problems, people missing weight. Uh, but I personally, I'm a big fan of same-day weigh-ins. Yeah, and just to be clear, this isn't like an anti Kamaru Usman thing. It's just he happens to – this happened this week, right? Because Usman's already defended twice – and that twice in a year, which I, is exactly what we're proposing. So this isn't like an anti Kamaru Usman thing by any means, right? Right. He just he happened to postpone this when the discussion came up. Uh, other news: Kobe Covington, man. Uh, speaking of Kamaru Usman in that welterweight division, he has confirmed uh, his next fight. It's looking almost certain that it's going to be Jorge Masvidal sometime near December. And man, I think that's a great fight. Uh, winner probably getting that next shot at Usman or Burns, uh, whoever wins that matchup. Uh, Kamzat Chemaev versus Damian Maya, not happening, right? I think Chemaev quickly outgrew that matchup, right? Like they they scheduled it, and then he became too big for so, that fight. So what happened with that fight? Did Maya pull out, or the UFC? No, Dana just it? Dana just canceled it. <laughs> there was nothing in it for Chemaev at that point. When it was scheduled, it's like, yeah, we'll get him an increase in competition. I mean, that's a, that's a and pay- then when he came out against Mearshart, they a, it's a paycheck for him that Dana just took out his spot. Oh, they, no, 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 no. They're they're working on something else. So Dana trying to get a fight scheduled with Wonderboy. Uh, Wonderboy actually turned that down. Yeah, Wonderboy said that he doesn't see what's in it for him to write, I mean, to fight an unranked fighter, yeah. uh, which, I mean, I guess I can see it, but it comes off as I'm not going to fight that gorilla. He's not going to make a name off of me. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's almost aggravating. You see a lot of fighters now, it's like constantly jostling and, and, and jostling to see like, oh, I'm going to fight him. I'm not going to fight him. I want to fight him. 
I mean, like you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording tonight, like it should be in their contracts. Like you're going to fight who we tell you to fight. Like you might have a suggestion, but at the end of the day, you work for us. We're going to say, hey, this is who we want you to fight. Do you want to fight? No. Take a seat. It's kind of like Leon Edwards. Leon Edwards is constantly chirping about fighting people, yeah. but turns down every single fight given him. Because I think, uh, didn't Wonderboy call out Leon Edwards uh, first? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Wonderboy was definitely willing to take that fight. It's been a long time since we've seen Leon Edwards, like almost a year and a half, I think. Yeah. And Chimeyev definitely needs to fight somebody either at welterweight or middleweight in the top 15. Like he needs a ranked opponent. Yeah. And a smart move for Wonderboy, as long as they do have the option, I think he's in the top five and very conceivable that uh he's up there with a title shot right because okay he had the draw and then the uh decision loss to woodley as long as woodley's the champion it's not happening right you're not right. getting the trilogy with off of a draw and a loss uh usman usman or burns it's not inconceivable that like okay covington maybe gets another shot at it leon edwards gets a shot at it whatever wonder boy's right in that discussion if he loses to Chimaev, he's out of that discussion. Yeah, so it's Leon, not a terrible decision. Leon Edwards has to fight. He needs to beat somebody. It's like, I don't think people realize, remember who Leon Edwards is, except the guy that uh, Masvidal smacked up backstage. <laughs> All right. So uh, somebody did call out Chimaev. Did you hear uh, Alex Cowboy Oliveira? Call him out in middleweight. I heard, I heard El, uh, Oliveira calling him out, which that's a dumb fight. I mean, Chimaev smokes Oliveira and. Dude. Next, I, next i love cowboy Oliveira, man I, I i like him too but super positive he can't guy. fight Chimaev. man he's he's skilled for sure super positive super happy guy super old he uh he survived a grenade attack at a gas station in brazil i mean that if you don't yeah. love him for that that's i mean that's he, he's 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 an amazing fighter he's always tough he's always game he always comes to fight yeah but this is too tall of an order for man. This is out of his wheelhouse. Like it'll, I mean, uh, you're going to do that. Let him fight Maya. Let him fight Damian Maya. Like it's the same thing. Yeah, you're just swapping so. apple. You're just swapping apples for apples here. Well, here's the question. Which of those two fights would you rather see? Oliveira I'd rather see or wonder boy. I'd rather see Oliveira fight Maya. Okay. Well, what about for Chimaev? What's your dream matchup for Chimaev next? Uh, I think Chimaev needs to fight somebody. I mean, with, a, with a little name, a, a little power on him. I mean, He's fighting at 170, and he's also fighting at 185. So, I mean, at 170, I mean, let Leon Edwards fight him. Yeah, sure. You, well, I mean, that's that's a big step up for Chimaev, not just in competition, but in uh, passing up a lot of guys to get to that number. What uh, Edwards might be number three, right? Uh, he he might be. It's a mean, big. It, yeah. it, it is a pretty steep jump. Yeah, and I don't think it's so much. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be so worried about the competition for him, but I could see a lot of guys like, whoa, come on, man. like. Your well, third fight, and you're getting the number three guy. But nobody wants to fight this man. Yeah. Oh, that's and that would be the all the excuse that you need. Like, dude, we'd love to give him 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, but they all turned him down. So yeah, nobody so wants three to fight this man. Uh, I mean, somebody's got to step up with with a legitimate claim and say, yeah. So Leon Edwards is number three. Number Steven, three. Steven Thompson's number five. Yeah. And Damian Maya is number six. So him not fighting Damian Maya makes no sense because he's number six mm -hmm. wonder boy's number five so that's an even better fight leon i mean what now once you're talking at five four three i mean it doesn't matter at this yeah. point because i mean they're all in that same ranking wheelhouse so jumping a lot of guys you're already jumping a lot of guys to get the one i'd love to see it or you're jumping a lot of guys to get the damian maya damian maya on the ufc website yeah we're he's looking at right six. now no he's number six that sounds about right and or let him fight michael uh Chizesa or 
Robert Dos Anjos. I mean, Neil Magny is another good fight. Like these yeah. are oh, these are Neil, Magny's number ten right now. That's Neil, a good fight for Neil him. Magny would be an amazing fight stylistically, right? I think uh, uh, Michael Chiesa it might be a little bit small because he used to be lightweight, moved up to one seventy because he was having some weight cut issues. Whereas, so he's on the smaller side of welterweight. Jamayev's on the larger side of welterweight. I mean, that might not uh, work out too well for him. I mean, that doesn't play into your ranking. You, this is yeah, this is the yeah. division you're choosing I'd to fight in. You I would fight love to see there. the Leon Edwards fight. And then you got, then you also have Robbie Lawler, who's 15, but he's going to be fighting. Pla- he's going to be fighting Platinum Mike Perry next. Hell yeah, he is. So I mean, that is the biggest story in MMA for me this week is the Platinum Mike Perry uh, corner man raffle. Yes. I mean, you had. You had Darren Till uh, say he'd give 5,000 bucks. He was like, somebody tell him because I'm blocked on his social media still. Because then he was like, oh, if I'm all but in there, who? how much will you give me to throw the towel yeah. in for his fight? I saw a uh, like a porn website yeah, yeah, offer $10,000. Well, you had, you had, it was a porn star offer 10 grand. Now you have a bunch of uh, NFL players. Like they didn't name their names. There's a bunch of NFL players that are legitimately interested wanting to offer like 15, 20 grand. So it's just hard to get seats, right? This is a good way to get front row cage side there's no seats yeah i mean this is this is your way into the building man it's like yeah dude we're in your corner we don't know what the hell we're not going to tell you anything because we'd fuck you up but i mean his girlfriend i mean with uh latora latori right uh latori i think it's latori because he he got that lip tattoo this week that was awesome (laughs) uh so I think I mean Latorius coached him to two. He's to two and zero, oh, man. He had that with a quick win in the UFC. Then he beat up that old dude in the bar. I mean, she, they're two and zero oh together. They're they're a strong team. Hey, on the local front, Mid City MMA's Tan Lee, man, finally getting that crack at the one championship featherweight belt. Um, Lee taking on Martin Wynn on October thirtieth in Singapore. We've been waiting for this fight for a long time, right? We have, we have. Uh, I mean. It's hard for me to guess that these fights are going to go any different than Tan's last few fights in one. Yep. Tan is absolutely highlight people. Yep. He's doing what he wants. He's he's showcasing his lightning fast talent. Whatever he hits, he destroys. I think Tan Lee is bringing that belt back home to the Bayou. Awesome. In this week's episode, we're going to look back at UFC on ESPN home versus old Donna from last weekend. Uh, then we're going to be joined by Dr. John Marino. And uh, lastly, we're going to look ahead to UFC Fight Night Morais versus Sanhagen. And we'll give our picks for the main card. And guys, remember, we're nominated for the best local podcast in New Orleans. If you could head over to Alt923, alt923.com, click on the Woodies, uh, which is the name of the awards, and vote for the Fight Sport Focus podcast. It would help us out a bunch. Last week was a bit of a slow one for fights. The Contenders Series is on hiatus until November, uh, but the UFC was back on Fight Island, and it seemed like somewhat of a lackluster card on paper turned out to be pretty good. Dan Hardy returned to his UFC commentating job. His future was definitely up in the air there uh, after that controversy with Herb Dean back in July. If you remember, uh, Francis... uh, Francisco Trinaldo dropped Jai Herbert and uh, Hardy yelled at Herb Dean, uh, Herb Dean to stop the fight because he felt that Herb wasn't doing his job. Nick, you're the referee. You've got uh, the better opinion about this, at least in this room. Uh, what do you think about commentators yelling at referees, trying to instruct them on what they should be doing inside of the cage? Oh, How it, does that strike you? It doesn't matter. I mean, referees are used to 
stadiums and yep. arenas and venues full of people constantly yelling at us, promoters telling us what we should be doing. I mean, at the end of the day, that ref is going to get in there and he's going to do his job to the best of his ability. And he's going to conduct himself the way the sports can be as competitive and as safe as humanly possible because the referee's job isn't to determine the outcome of the fight. It's the safety of the fighters. Yeah. And if Herb felt that this fight was okay, then Herb felt it was okay. Yeah, and that's another thing that I wanted to ask you was, was it really that big of a deal? Did Dan Hardy fuck up that badly? Or was it just blown out of proportion because uh, the fact that there's no crowd, so it's just easy to hear? I think that- As opposed to Dan being one of the 10,000 people who are yelling, you know, when it's empty and he's the only one, maybe it's gets blown out of proportion. I think in Dana's, in Dana's from Dana's viewpoint, that what, what he did was he was a UFC employee- yelling at another UFC employee and kind of airing his, his opinions yeah. and his dirty laundry. And it kind of messes with the integrity in the of the fight a little right. bit too. And Dan, Dan Hardy's paid to comment. I mean, he thinks, oh, this should stop the fight. I mean, commentators say that stuff all the time. Like, oh, this is going too long. Oh, this is too many punches. But to stand up and yell at the ref, it's a little excessive, especially when there's no one in there. So yeah. everything said is, is talked about. I mean, even like the fighters themselves, like we even had like when, uh, when Dustin fought Dan Hooker, like he commented back. To the commentators, like he was talking to them as they were talking. Yeah. Oh, uh, what did Platinum Mike Perry said? He goes, yeah, I heard Cormier say this. So I started doing it. Like <laughs> everything that you say is going to be heard when there's no one in the room. You can hear a pin drop in there. So. Yeah. And look, speaking of Dan Hardy, uh, his career has gone from fighting Carlos Condit uh, in the co-main event at UFC 120 back in 2010 yes. to yes. interviewing, interviewing him uh, post fight here in 2020. Then, uh, Dan got slapped, right? Uh, yeah. Um, absolutely but it seems now i saw it today i read it somewhere that dan hardy said uh, he's interesting in running that one back if uh carlos wants it you interested in seeing that at all this isn't bellator sir this is the ufc <laughs> these are those are uninteresting fights to me that, that this is just like it brings the headache to my head the same when people were like masvidal and nate diaz should fight again why yeah there's no need why for that there's fight no to need for that fight to happen i'd like to see masvidal fight nick diaz I mean, I, I'd be interested in that fight, or I'd rather see maybe Nick fight Nate. Like that would be a good fight. I'd watch that one too. <laughs> I mean, Bellator. Uh, I mean, Michael, Michael, uh, what is his name? Michael Coker, Michael Scott, uh, Scott Coker, whatever his name is. Bellator president. Yeah, let's yeah. just call him Bellator president. Bellator, the Bellator president. He wants so bad to be as good as the UFC. And the thing about it is, like, he should just be comfortable being Bellator. Like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with Bellator. They're good. He said, uh, he was like, imagine because they always talk about the caliber of our fighter, but one of our fighters gets signed and he's automatically an alternate for a title fight. Well, I have a couple problems with that. Number one, Michael Chandler should not be the alternate. Probably he's done not. nothing in the UFC. Number two, Michael Chandler is a special guy. He's a great fighter. Yep. I think he's going to great give a, human being. Great he's going to give a lot of people a lot of problems. I'm, I'm excited to see him fight, but he was good enough to make the jump. I mean, and then Bellator has also got to realize that it's the home for fighters that are no longer in the title hunt in the UFC. Yeah, and for the most part, are long past their time when they were in that title. Yeah, I think hunt. Uh, they announced like Melton uh, on. Manhoff has a uh, wow. Melvin Manhoff has is, is fighting. Wow, I think that's from like way back, maybe in the Pride days. Even yeah, Manhoff, huh? Like yeah, yeah. Way so so back Manhoff there. is fighting in Bellator now. Like so, I mean, it is what it is. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you and I have talked about it. Even if I'm not interested, even if you're not interested, if there's a fight on, we're gonna watch it. 
So looking back real quick at UFC and ESPN home versus Aldana uh, from Fight Island on Saturday night, Carlos Condit versus Court McGee capped off the prelims. And uh, in my opinion, Carlos Condit hasn't really looked the same since that decision loss to Robbie Lawler back in 2016. I remember watching that fight and definitely thought Condit won. I know a lot of other people did too. Condit lost his next four. And uh, he entered Saturday night on a five-fight losing streak, which is quite rare uh, in the UFC. Um, yeah, he got that. That's that Corona perk where if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you're ready to go and we need people, it's time to go. Well, finally, the coronavirus is paying off in some respects. Well, and look, that streak uh, broken, 30-27 unanimous decision win over Court McGee. Almost had a finish in the end of the first. Yeah, he looked good. Uh, he looked confident. He was also fighting Court McGee. That's fine. Court McGee's a scrapper, right? A uh, little bit old, but a scrapper. Condit's a little bit old. I think as long as we have it in perspective with Carlos Condit, like he's not about to get back in title contention. As long as you understand, yeah, we're watching a Carlos Condit fight. Like I'd rather, I mean, I'd like to see Carlos Condit fight Nick Diaz again too. I think that was a really good fight. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. Uh, what do you think? He gets somebody in the top fifth. No. or do we need another fight or two before we can start talking about even the top 15 uh, i don't think it's ever gonna happen i mean tight top 15 uh yeah i think he needs at least one more fight before we talk about top 15 unless you're trying to make like a super fight like a run back fight like yeah. i'd be interested in seeing him fight nick diaz like the rumors out there but they keep posting nick's in shape nick's in shape he's ready nick's returned his suspension's over like will he fight again nick diaz in my opinion is always kind of like Nick Diaz, Conor McGregor, GSP, like, are they going to fight? Will they fight? And then it's the the chess game with them three after that. Yeah. Let's move on to the main card. A couple of second round knockouts to start us off. Uh, Dusko Tudorovic over Daquan Townsend and Kyler Phillips over Cameron Elsay. Uh, third on the main card, Jermaine Durandame took on Juliana, the Venezuelan vixen, Pena. And uh, I had it 19-19 going into the third. Thought it was all uh, tied up. I thought Durandame had the first. Pena looked like she had won the second. And who would have thought, man, Durandame uh, got that high elbow guillotine in the third. And the undefeated kickboxing champion locked up her first career submission in mixed martial arts. In the co-main, we had Carlos Felipe. And uh, he got the decision over Jorgon De Castro. Nick, I wanted to ask you about this one as well. Uh, referee Kevin Sataki, who I think is incredible, at the end of the third round there, he kept separating the two fighters like in the last two minutes or so, right? Because De Castro was obviously exhausted. He would wrestle, uh, get Felipe up against the cage, was working, not enough to Sataki's uh, delight. And it, it was so weird. I've never seen this before, right? Like, Five seconds of being locked up, Sataki would separate them. They'd go back together. Okay, five seconds, separate. It must have happened five or six times. Uh, you've told me your thoughts about referees stepping in and separating guys before, right? Um, so for the audience, how do you feel about the referee, uh, about what Sataki did at third round? He obviously wanted them to to have exchanges, right? He wasn't giving uh, DeCastro any time to work in the clinch. How do you feel about a referee like imposing the desire that they have for the fight to go onto the two guys that are actually uh, engaging in the fight. Well, I mean, obviously I, I disagree with referees trying to impose their will on a fight. I personally would have conducted that fight a little differently, but I mean, 
I try. It takes a lot for me to talk bad about refs or say, "Oh, yeah, this course. is awful." I, I, mean, I think he's one of the best and, that we have. I mean, I, I don't know what his thought process was or why he was doing that. Um, I mean, that, that's a that's more of a question for old Dana White to see. Hey, the, what do you feel about this? But I personally, like I said, I, I I would not have conducted that fight in that fashion. I would have done things differently. Yeah, and you have to give guys a chance to work. You just can't pull them apart. And I'm not a fan of breaking guys up at all yeah you've told me that before right you like let them get fight. yourself like, out if of that you position. don't if you don't want this guy pressing you up against the cage fucking move yeah because like felipe kept looking up at uh sataki like come on come do it come get him off of me and it's like yeah if you didn't like it that much you could have gotten your underhook and turned him against the cage if you had the energy to do so right if you don't like the position fine i, do something I say to i it. say mostly i say in rules meetings all the time do not look to me to save you if you see me coming in to save you the fight's over. That's the only time I'm saving you is yeah. when the fight is the over. The fight ending sequence. It's just like instant replay. Like, we'll go to it, but right. it's going to be the end of the fight. If you don't like this position you're in, fight. And moving on to the main event, Holly Holm took on Irene Aldana. Nick, you and I both went with Aldana, and uh, Holly Holm looked like a woman on a mission, okay? Her mission was to fuck up your and my only pick this week. And she absolutely dismantled Aldana for the decision win. Holm looked amazing in that fight. I have never seen her look that good. Obviously, stand-up was impeccable, but also her wrestling, takedowns, high-level ground karate when she got her, her down. Her cardio is second to no one. Yes. She was doing backflips after a five-round <laughs> fight. And in the fifth round, like she was still actively fighting to win this fight. Now, I think she needs another combo than jab, uppercut, jab, uppercut. But other than that, she looked phenomenal. She looked great. Um, I forgot which round it was when Aldana was getting up and Holly threw that head kick. And she landed with the foot. If she was half a step closer, that yep. would have been shin to dome. Yep. And that would have been over. Aldana, I mean, it was almost like she just did like she couldn't get going. Like she was stuck in the mud. She just couldn't couldn't find that gear that stuck, couldn't get her punches yeah. loose. Like she just it's almost like she was just going through the motions and getting it done. Like I don't know where her headspace was, but she didn't look like she normally does. And that takes nothing away from Holly because Holly was on her every second of the fight. What Aldana had like with the the second highest takedown percentage, uh, uh, defense percentages to John Jones. Yeah, and had a kickboxer yeah. take her down. And then no, no one told Holly Time Holmes after time. Yep. That she took her down in every single round. Yeah, I heard somebody talking about it recently, uh, sometime this week, saying that, like, all right, the people, uh, the cardio kings, you know, that we talk about, Colby Covington or Nate Diaz, like, we have to start including Holly Holm into that discussion I, after 1, that fight. thousand percent. She looked the best she did since she knocked out Ronda. Agreed. Now she's 14 and five. What do you think might be next for the preacher's daughter, man? Maybe run it back with Deronda May. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Uh, I mean, she's definitely, she definitely needs somebody in the top five. Um, and I think if she's, I think she's one win away from putting her name back in. I'm next in line to fight Amanda again. And then once she fights Amanda again, it's either you beat her or it, we're done here. Yeah. Uh, she said she was well, she 37 now. She said she doesn't want to even talk about retirement. She says she is nowhere near ready to retire. And, and she looked like she wasn't ready to retire. Like she that was a statement fight for her. That was a statement win. And I've never been more happy to be wrong about a fight <laughs> in my life. I mean, I yeah. like Holly Holm and I am ecstatic that she went out there and gave that performance that she gave. Yeah, agreed on all fronts. Hey, Nick, 
we've got a very special guest this week. Absolutely. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Dr. John Marino before we get him on the phone? I think you guys were in for a treat. John's a very special guy. We've been friends for almost 10 years now. John has lived a very amazing life, and he's currently in a fight for his life. And But we'll get into that with Dr. John. All right, let's get him on the phone. Guys, we'll be right back. I'm Jeffrey Hoffman with Nicholas Sherlock, and we're joined by Dr. John Marino. John, welcome to the Fight Sport Focus podcast. Thank you for taking the time out to talk with us. Yeah, man, thank you for having me. I just want to say thanks uh, uh, to the listeners and thanks to you guys for having me on. I'm excited about doing this. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a talk with you guys. Yes, sir. I'm excited to have John on here. John is one of my personal friends. Like I said, John and I have been friends for almost 10 years now. We met through uh, the sport of mixed martial arts. So it's always been a special bond that he and I have had. John is also a real life John Wick. Uh, he sh- he's a professional shooter. He's traveled the world teaching and learning Muay Thai. He is a medical doctor. Uh, so we can just jump right into that. John, how did you go from medicine? to Muay Thai? Well, Muay Thai has always been in my life since I was a little kid. On my fourth birthday, my mom asked me what I wanted to to do. And I said, I want to, this was right around the time that Karate Kid came out, like the original in the late 80s. I was born in 84. I think that's right around the time that Karate Kid number one came out. And uh, I had just watched that movie and I said, I want to go, I want to go do stuff like that. And she brought me to a, it was like a a half uh, um, uh, Japanese karate and half Muay Thai gym. So I, I got introduced to it when I was about four. And it's been in the background my whole life, no matter what I was doing, whether I was in college and playing college sports or in, in medical school and doing that whole thing. And um, so it's always been there. I just kind of realized that when I, when I hit my third or fourth year of medical school, I was kind of like, this um, is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. This is the uh, not the, the right kind of lifestyle. And I started teaching right around. I think that's where I went around. I met you in my, my third year of medical school. I moved to New Orleans and, and I was at Ancona. And we met, that's where I met Ron and you. And that was in what, 2010, something like that. So it's been 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I kind of, I, I knew at that point that I, that's when I started teaching for you guys in New Orleans. And I knew at that point, that was probably where I was going to end up if, if medical school kept going the way it was going. <laughs> So yeah, that's uh, that's that's how I made it. I just kind of realized, I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital before. You're never in there. No one's ever happy. Like, there's really only two times I can tell you when someone come in and they're, you know they're happy. It's like a birth of a child, or if I tell you your wife doesn't have cancer anymore. You know what I mean? Other than that, no one wants to be there. Like, I don't want to be there. And, and that miserable attitude kind of infects everybody, including the other employees and the patients. And it just turned into a, a place that I didn't want to be at. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, right out of medical school, once you finished medical school, did you start trying to take a job as doing that? Or did you get right to traveling? Well, you gotta do residency. It was a crazy story. The way that, that, that all that stuff happened is that, is that, um, I was going to do residency. Um, I applied through the match, uh, or got my, my match application started. I took my boards. I graduated medical school on a, on like a Friday night. Um, the match shit happened on a Tuesday and then I blew my knee out on the, that Wednesday or something. So it was all in the same week. And, and, uh, that, that knee 
surgery pushed everything off. I wasn't allowed to start any residency. I had to take another board exam that got pushed way back. Um, so I lost everything that I was kind of working for, but it was, there was a silver lining there. It was, it was what woke me up to, Hey man, you don't, you don't want to be doing this anymore. You want to, you want to go, you know, let's do Muay Thai and take some time to, to chill out for medicine and do something that you're passionate about. And so there was a little silver lining there after the, after that knee surgery is really when I came back and started teaching and coaching more than anything. I heard, uh, when we were doing a little pre, uh, getting our levels right and everything, I realized that I personally didn't even know that, that you lived in China and that's kind of something yeah. that you and Jeff have in common where Jeff lived in, in China and you and guys were beginning to talk about a little of that. What was your experience? Like you said, you lived there for six months. What was your experience like Man. living in China? So in, in medical school, in this program that I went to, I went to a global medical program that you get kind of two medical degrees at once because I did my undergrad, some of my undergrad in England at Oxford. And I knew that I, I kind of might want to go back to one of the Commonwealth countries. And in order to do that, you needed an MBBS and an MD, which is what this program provided. So at the end of your first year of medical school, you're required to do a, a rotation in a third world country or a third world area. I had gotten special permission to go do it in Scotland because I knew I loved Scotland. But uh, the girl I was seeing at the time wanted to go to China, and she kind of just talked me into it. And I was like, all right, well, we'll go. And we went to this place called Chongqing, which is way inland, kind of near Tibet. And uh, it was it was honestly the, the, the most difficult five or six months I've ever had in my entire life. It was It was hard. The poverty level was unbelievable. And we were at, like, the biggest, nicest hospital in the area. And Chongqing is a city of something like 33 million people in the surrounding area. It's God a huge damn. city. And, uh, you know, no one spoke any English and, and, um, everything, it was, everything was crazy. Everything was completely backwards. Everything we eat, they throw away. Everything we throw away, they eat the, the cultural differences. I'm sure Jeff, you can chime in on this. was, was so different. You, you walk off the plane, you just overwhelmed with, with the uh, different quality of life and, and the way things are done. What do you think, Jeff? Was that the same kind of experience you had? Yeah, John. So I've traveled uh, kind of all over the place. I've lived a bunch of different places, uh, you know, in Asia, South Korea, uh, I, I lived in South Korea, I lived in Thailand, China. Um, I visited Japan, I visited all over Southeast Asia, I've lived in uh, Chile and South America, I've visited Europe, I've been all over. He's got one child in each country, too. He doesn't want to admit it, but he has one child in each country. Blood tests, yeah. blood tests are still pending. And I, this is I, why he can't do an ancestry. We talked to him about ancestry and he was like, no way I cannot get in any database cannot happen. I'm always suspicious when people come up to me and ask me to spit in something for him. I'm like, no, you're going to have to be can't, smarter than that. Can't do it. Like you're, you're, you're a good looking lad, but uh, we can't do this. So I would say, uh, you know, the more you travel, the more you understand that like everything is very similar, you know, like everybody's kind of doing the same things in the same ways. And you just, yep. you kind of feel that, you know, it's all kind of the same. And then you get to China and you're like, it's all kind then you of get different. To China, that's right. <laughs> They're not doing anything that anybody else is doing. <laughs> so were they wearing Nothing. masks way back when, when you guys were there? Because yeah. I know China's like kind of like, and they're wearing a mask here in America is a new thing. And you have people that want to do it. You have people they that do, hate it. But China's always stuff, doing Nick. it. They, they wear masks and everything like this. But I, I shit you not, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I, one of the, we were there for a bunch of months and, one of the months that we had to do there was cardiothoracic surgery. So we were doing like lung transplants and lung resections and, and heart transplants on these people. And uh, this, the, the, the cancer ward that we were on a lung cancer ward and the doctors smoke. I'm, I'm not kidding. I can't make it up. I have pictures. Uh, they smoke on the ward. 
You're allowed to smoke in the hospital. Yeah, I got my that's uh, insane. I got my blood taken there by a nice young lady that wasn't wearing gloves, and I, I always assumed the yep. gloves were for her protection, so right. I was fine with it. It's yeah. Yeah, man, I I, I have some crazy stories. John. There was some crazy stuff that happened there, but uh, we'll probably have to shelf that and save that for another time. Well, let me ask you a medical-related question uh, because I've heard yeah. that uh, doctors in China are still required by law to prescribe uh, traditional Chinese medicine along with they, real medicine. They're, they're not required by law, but it's it's encouraged. Correct. You, you can go to places and buy ground-up deer penis. Yeah, uh, wait, like, what? No joke. Yeah, but like, these, like on the Glimmer yeah. Man, like that Steven Seagal when he. I mean, do you remember that when he had Damon Wayans and Steven Seagal and he's like, "Yes, oh, no, I'm just gonna go home and put some deer nuts under my tongue." Like this is what I'm gonna do. Yeah, it's legit like that, and they're little little corner stores like that. But you don't need a prescription. You can go in there and just buy it. But like the normal stuff. So like if you go to a hospital, and Jeff, if you went to the hospital, yeah, you probably identify with this, but they won't treat you unless you. So you, you'll go and you'll see the doctor, and they'll tell you what's wrong, and then they'll write your prescriptions of what you need, even if you need to get admitted. Like I needed to get in the middle. I cut my thumb right down to an artery and they had to do stitches and all that stuff. But before they stitched me up, I had to go back out to the front desk and pay for all my supplies and then bring it back into the ER before they stitch me up and give me the medicine and all that stuff. So it's a totally different system than what, than what we use here. If you can't pay for it, they ain't helping you. Yeah. And so what I heard is obviously through the 1960s with like the cultural revolution and all that kind of stuff going on, unfathomable death and turmoil and just a shortage of everything. Uh, there was no medicine. Yep. Uh, there was that they, they couldn't get food. They couldn't get the basic supplies. They definitely weren't getting medicine. So the government mm -hmm. uh, went back to traditional medicines, which I guess today most people thinking about it are like, oh no, the Chinese have always used this. It's always worked, and it's always where at well, that, that time it was kind of gone. And the the government went to it because yeah. they didn't want to seem like they had nothing for their people because they had nothing. So they had yep. if you went to the doctor with some sickness, they would just give you the traditional. And so now well, they're the kind of like doubled down is, on it. They still do that. They still do that. But the problem that they're having now is they're like, we had to do ophthalmology. And this is a really common one because we're in a place where there's a lot of farmers. And, and the farmers, the rice plants or whatever they're, they're farming there, uh, the edges of the leaves can, will cut their eyes when they're walking through the, the farm. Now, the problem with the plants is that they carry fungus on the plants and on the edges of the leaves. So they get these fungal infections in their eye. And in order to fix it, you need to get to a doctor within about 24 hours. But these people were, lived so far away and the, the poverty level is so low, they had to get on a train, take the train. It takes four days to get there. But they would put like the traditional Chinese medicine on their eye, hoping that it would help. But clearly, it's not going to stop a fungal infection inside your eyeball. So they'd show up and, and their eye would basically be falling up. And it would happen three or four times a day. One of my favorite quotes, uh, I think it might be Bill Nye, who said, uh, there's no such thing as traditional medicine. It doesn't matter uh, when this technique came out. If it worked, it would just be called medicine. They wouldn't exactly. You, you wouldn't need <laughs> anything to describe it. They would just say if any of it worked whatsoever, it would just be medicine. Medicine, correct? Yeah, I agree. I agree with Bill Nye on that one. <laughs> so, John, where else? Uh, where else did you really like? So, you, you did there for the for for the medicine thing. Uh, you finished school and everything. Did you ever live in Thailand or did you just travel there multiple times for, for educational purposes? I wish I had got, I wish I had got to live there. I, I would do, 30, you're allowed 30 days on your visa before you have to go. So usually when I go, I try to stay for 30 days. Where were you at? Down South? Uh, like at Tiger? Muay Thai? Pattaya. Pattaya, yeah. So, yeah, Pattaya, Sit Tongue. Sit Tongue is, the, you know, the Mecca for, for, uh, for Muay Thai. It's an interesting fact that that one gym has has released more Lipanese champions than the rest of the entire country put together. 
That's uh, that's pretty incredible. Why don't you explain what what, what that is so uh, so our listeners can keep up? So what do you mean? Like Liberty Stadium? Uh, no, you said or, they produce the more. Gym. They produce more champions. Right. So so there's a, there's two main fighting facilities in Thailand. There, there's Liberty Stadium. They're both in Bangkok, and the other one is Raja Stadium, which is like the king's the king's uh, where the king goes to watch Muay Thai. And and really, the the common folk one is the Limpany Stadium, and 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 that's where the real champions get made. Like the guys who who have been fighting, you know, they get like four or five hundred fights under their belt. You know, these these Thai guys fight forever. They start at like six and they finish at thirty five or forty or something like that. And it's it's really in the way that they train that keeps them healthy for so long. They don't they don't really do any sparring. So I I don't really encourage sparring much unless there's a real purpose for it. Because of what I've learned in Thailand, really pad work is what the closest I can get you to fighting is is with pads when I can fight back. And I learned that from them. And it keeps the fighters in shape and not getting their brains knocked in the whole time so they can keep fighting. So how does that help so, them? How does that help them absorb like damage or get used to actually taking getting fire they're turned not, out? They're not hurt. I mean, how many times have you gone into an MMA fight with, with a with a pre-existing injury because training overtraining too hard or doing something silly every single I think fight most of us all the time yeah these guys go in fresh they don't really cut much weight they cut a couple of pounds they stay skinny they go running they hit pads three times a day and and they do a little clinch bar and then they'll they'll, they'll do some play sparring once a week so are you a, sorry are you go. personally a fan of that same day weigh-in we were talking about that earlier and i'm a huge fan of same day weigh-in yeah i wish i wish we would do the same day weigh-ins yeah absolutely uh, I, when I fought a couple of amateur fights, they were always same day weigh-ins right before you went in the ring. Well, what were the benefits of so, uh, weighing in that day? Oh man, you're fresher. You feel better. Um, the, the fights are more fun to watch. It's two fresh guys. I mean, some guys cut a whole bunch of weight. And it, I don't know if you ever cut weight before. I'm sure Nick, you have, but you, you feel like someone, you got hit by a bus before you even step into the ring. Oh, absolutely. So and totally then, it, and then the if you, of the fight. if you rehydrate wrong, Oh, it's even worse it's even than rehydrating worse. at all. Like yeah. It's it's so some of these guys cut like massive, massive amounts of weight. So I know that most guys, most guys are fighting. If it's the same day weigh in, guys are fighting more at their natural weight class. But you see yeah. that a lot with the Asian community and the Asian fighters, uh, like Sexy Yama back in the day. He would only cut like five pounds. Yeah, there's not a lot to cut on those guys, well, right? They yeah. don't have a lot of fat to begin with. Right. So, so they're walking at like 175. They're fighting at 170. Where that was an American yeah, so, fighter so, and it was fighting walking at 175. He's probably fighting at 45. You know, you know a, a great fighter who you guys will know, who's one of my old students, AJ Fletcher, has made this transition. He, I had him fighting at 155. He's, he, he walks around at, I don't know, 180, 190 pounds. He's a big, stocky kid. You guys, y'all have seen him. Yep. And, and I had him fighting at 155. And we were kind of realizing that that's too much, that's too much of a, of, of a cut for him. And he, he bumped up to 170 and, and really only cut 10, you know, five, 10 pounds before he fight. And he's been on a tear, uh, since then. I mean, he's changed some other things about his fighting, but the, the weight cut really helps him stay focused and keep his, his mental capacity kind of honed in on what he's got to do. And, and it's less about how much weight I can lose and more about, I want to go fight someone. Yeah. You reach a point where there's kind of diminishing returns, right? Where you're fighting yeah, a smaller yeah. guy, but you have so much less power and so much less vigor while you're fighting. There is a point where you, you do have diminishing returns. Yeah. I think the, the mental thing is really important to you because I remember when I had to cut weight, it was something I would think about all the time. What food can I have? How much water can I have? Like, what's next on, on my workout list? How, what's my way that today? And I, I wish that, you know, more people could get away from that and think more about 
who am I fighting next? What, what's my goal here? What's my strategy on fighting? And, and spend more time focusing on the fight than, than the weight cut. Yeah, that was that was the worst part of fighting for me was obviously, I mean, everybody when I was still fighting, everybody was doing that modified Dolce diet. You can get the book offline, Mike Dolce, and you could do his little diet. But I mean, who wants to wake up and go, oh, I have to make three whole eggs, but I got to take three yolks out and I can have five blueberries yeah. and seven almonds. Yep. Like that shit is aggravating. Like, and that makes you more angry fun. than it was, than, than, than actually and fighting no, that, was. Take, it took the fun out of getting ready for fighting. Yeah, it, it's taking mental preparation away from the act of actually fighting and putting it into something else, which which you know isn't uh, isn't great for the you know the amateur fighter who's trying to learn how to. I'm a lot of the pro guys have people do this for them, but the amateur guys, you know, it's, it's hard to stay focused on the fight while you're worrying about so many other things. You know? Yeah, it's a whole another skill that you have to learn, right? Is being it's able a to cut weight. Skill. And, and if you don't have a coach who knows how to do it, man, you are in big trouble. Or like, if, if you weren't if, a high school wrestler. Right. Because if, if exactly. you've got that wrestling background and you've been doing it for five, six, seven years, if you did it through middle school, it still sucks. Yeah. I mean, I've wrestled through middle school and, but at high least, school and it still sucks. But at least you've got that knowledge that when you start fighting, you know how to do it as opposed to like a person who just right. starts fighting. They're getting their way, their ground game, they're getting their striking. And there's this whole other it's not even a subset. It's a whole completely different skill that if you're not good at, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Oh, I, I agree and, with and I agree with that. I think it makes it worse for wrestlers. Yeah. Because wrestlers go, oh, I know how to do this. So you know what? Maybe I can cut a little more. Maybe I can, I can get, yeah, I, I can get a little lower. Like I've seen guys yeah. like like how John was just talking about AJ Fletcher. Scott O'Shaughnessy used to do that. He used to take that massive amount of man he is and cut to fifty five and fight. Mm. And it was like, dude, That's this is crazy. too yeah. small. Like you could see the veins in this dude's abs when he weighed. And it was like, this is too much. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yep. we're the show's very familiar with AJ. We're actually going to have AJ uh, on with us next week. Uh, he's coming up. He's How getting ready, are you? He, yeah, he's getting ready to have a title fight on November. I just talked to him last time. He called me last night. He's a good kid, man. Uh, so as you're working your way through, you're doing your Muay Thai. You're coming through. Uh, eventually, somewhere along the way, you decided that you were going to get really into guns. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Don't you going to walk us through that a little mm-hmm. bit? How, how you how you made it from that transition? So, so after I blew my knee out, right after I graduated medical, I had to move to Florida and then back to Philly for rehab on my knee before I came back to New Orleans to, to start teaching. And uh, I had an incident where I was, it, it was actually a time when I was studying for one of the board exams, the medical board exams I had to do. And what I would do is I would, I would, you know, get out of the house and go drive down the street to a, uh, a McDonald's that had free Wi-Fi and was open 24 hours a day. And I'd sit in the parking lot with the windows down and, and, and read my books or whatever on my iPad. And uh, uh, it was right next to a bus stop. And it was kind of right outside Philly. So there was still, you know, it was we were in the suburbs, but not like crazy suburbs. We're, we're still near the city. And uh, I kind of had my head down and, and two guys walked up on the car real quick out of nowhere out of a ditch. And uh, one of them had a knife and he was kind of at the passenger side door. And the other one was reaching through and grabbing me by the shirt at the same time. And I had just enough time to pop it into reverse and like peel out and drive off. Um, and uh, it, it was enough to scare me into thinking that I'm completely, you know, useless. Every time a gun belt beats a black belt, it doesn't matter what kind of black belt you are. A gun belt's always going to win, especially if the guy knows how to use the, use the gun. So it was enough to make me think, okay, well, maybe um, it might be time to, to look into a firearm. And then uh, we went and we got, a, we, I got a firearm shortly thereafter. I got my license to carry. And then it kind of took off from there. I moved back to New Orleans. And I got a job 
um, at uh, one of the local gun ranges down there while I was teaching uh, over at Mushin. And it just blossomed from there. I got introduced to a bunch of people. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a bunch, there's a, there's a, a, a big shooting scene in New Orleans, or at least there was before COVID. And uh, I got introduced to the right people, and and they start, they kind of helped me through that because there's no way you can do it on your own. Nick, I know that you do some shooting, and and you'll see that once you start to try to make some steps into, into becoming a good shooter, if you don't have someone there to, to help you, you make all kinds of mistakes. And uh, I was really lucky to be at a place where they could they could show me and help me and 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 progress from there and and it really took on a big part of my life because it was one of the things I couldn't I couldn't train I couldn't really fight myself but I could run around and shoot a gun and it was it was the same mental thing so so th- what I mean is um, the only way that my brain can recharge and I'm sure Nick you'll you'll identify with this, the most fighters will probably identify with this is that when you're sparring you're fighting all your other problems go away right. You're not thinking about anything else except for the guy right in front of you. And for me, that's rejuvenating. You know, it doesn't matter how much hurt I get, but it's more about the the mental part of it. Is it, is it, it, it's like taking a really good nap after you're done sparring, you feel great. You know what I mean? Or you have a fight and you win and whatever. And that's your, your main problem. The same thing is with a gun, the buzzer goes off. And the only thing I'm thinking about is what targets I have to shoot when I have to do my reload and, and all that other stuff. But it's like a skill, like fighting. It's there to help defend myself if i ever needed or my family or my friends and it just kind of all went together all at once it was it was a nice kind of mix of, of how it started uh so during all this time training mma training muay thai i mean you've worked at some of the best gyms in the state of louisiana you've trained some of the best up-and-coming fighters and things like that uh so you've seen a lot of fights so what was your personal favorite fight that you've personally ever attended oh jesus no, no, no. Jesus didn't oh, fight. I'm know. sure you didn't see Jesus fight. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. We had, um, we had some, we've had some good ones. It, listen, so, sometimes the best fights aren't, aren't the biggest shows. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It, it would be really hard. It would be really hard for me to narrow one down. I remember there was a, a gravity card up, uh, outside Lafayette a long, long time ago where we took like five or six guys from Mushkin and everybody went in there and won like crazy fights. It was all a stand up fight. And so that was, that was fun to watch. But, um, I, I like watching this. There's a kid named uh, Tyler Hill, who's a student of mine. He's always fun to watch. Uh, AJ is always fun to watch. Uh, it's funny. My, my favorite fights are this, and uh, any coach will kind of identify with this, is that when you, 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 you get a, a fighter and it doesn't matter what, you know if they're pro or amateur or whatever, and you, you make a plan for how you want to attack the fight. You know, We had one fight with AJ where we wanted to, to knock some guy out with a head kick. So we trained for, for head kicks for three months before the fight, AJ went in there and knocked him out with a head kick in the second round. So like that, those are the fun things for me. You know, uh, TJ Landry also did a couple of things like that. Like uh, the other ones are like TJ had two fights with, with, for the, for the, uh, what's, what's, what's the corporation that fights out of the bell casino over there in, in Baton Rouge. Oh, uh, WFC. 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 T- you remember, do you remember TJ? Yeah. I remember TJ. I remember TJ. TJ well. He's an old, old school name now, but uh, he had two vicious battles for the amateur title there with this kid. I don't, I don't know. His name of his opponent escapes me at the moment, but they were like full on, uh, down and out. Like they both bloodied each other up and they just had, it was just a great fight, you know? So, uh, I just like watching guys go in there and one executing a plan or two having showing heart that they're, they're willing to go in there and just put online and, and, and take some abuse and give some abuse. And those are the fun ones. Of all the countries you've lived in, John, what, uh, what country had the most impact on you as a person? Oh, listen. So, so you can look at it in two ways. 
you, you can look at it ways that, that, that countries where you had, had a, a positive impact, right? Where you learn more about who you are. And then you, you the, the negative impacts are the big ones. The ones that you realize things you don't want to be. You know what I mean? Like uh, you, you sit there and you look at it and you're like, I definitely don't want this. And, and those are the ones that have more impact on me than anything is, is even when it came to past coaches or like how I've been developed as a coach that I am now is usually by looking at coaches that I've had and said, Oh, I don't want to be like this dude. This, this guy is not what the kind of coach that I want to be anything like. And I've had a couple of those, a couple of my first coaches were like, Oh my God. Um, it's the same with the countries. Uh, you look at them and you think, okay, this one is working right. Like I love Scotland. I would, if Scotland had good gun laws, I would, I would have a house in Scotland. Like it would definitely be a place I would go visit. But I would say Australia probably had the most. Australia and China were the two I I, I liked the least. Hmm. What was it about Australia that rubbed you the wrong way? Man, it's uh, just like you said before, Jeff. It's always a culture thing, right? It's always a culture thing. They don't have um. They, ha- they don't have some of the, the, the luxuries that we have here in America. Like we have checks and balances. It's a kind of common thing that we think of where if someone's in power, there's always some other people around to make sure that he's not fucking up too much. You know what I mean? Or they can take over. That's a kind of foreign concept to to Australians. So th- there's a lot of abuse of power over there in, in the government, in the political systems, and even in the medical school field that I was in. Me and the me and the dean of the medical school probably came to blows almost twice in his office, and he ended up in the end getting getting fired and and having some of his some of his staff put like thrown in jail for uh for for you know being kind of corrupt politicians in the in the academic field, and no one really knew about it. So, um, looking and seeing how other places work, um, and realizing that this is not what I want has had more of an impact on me than me thinking that this is what I want because I love America. America for me is, has easily been the best. Well, I mean, that's always awesome to hear. I mean, we all know that you're not going to meet a bigger Patriot than old Nikki G. Uh, so yeah, I, I hear that to hop, to hop back on a subject we had just talked about with the weapons. Uh, my friend Jeffrey here was thinking about acquiring another sidearm and we and I were, he and I, he and I were going back and forth about some different weapon options and things like that. I mean, we both know in the very beginning of John and I's relationship, I was a diehard Sig Sauer man. Yeah. Those are my guns. Yeah. And I'll still say yep. one of the most amazing machines on the planet is a Sig Sauer sidearm. I personally, for my, uh-huh. da- for my daily carry, I carry a, P- a, P32, a P320 compact. John remembers I got that the day it came out. They When they first released it, it was only the nine millimeter compact. I told John how much I paid for it. And he was like, idiot but i did it I, and, and how I, much was it so we're talking like 10 years ago how much uh, so when this one first came out i think it was like like 750 when yeah, it first okay. came out yeah so, they were a lot yeah that, that's yeah. a lot yeah. for for a for a subcompact right. gun for a, a daily carry but it's great i have my my little light on it i i can tuck it away anywhere it's it's small enough that it still has a it still has a 15 round mag so i mean it's because it's a uh, it's a stack fire it's not a single stack so it's a striker fire pistol it doesn't have a hammer I love it personally. Later on in life, John did convince me to get a Glock. John is a team Glock guy. Glock is his thing. But I honestly think what well, affected me most about Sig was the Sig Sauer captain, Max Michelle, used to shoot at the St. Bernard Parish Shooting Center all the time. So watching this guy run a firearm, he does nothing bro, wrong. He's on another level. He does he's on, nothing he's on, wrong. He, if he wants to hit it, other level. if he wants to hit it, 
He's hitting it. I honestly, in my opinion, uh, my my wet dream of shooters matches would be to watch Max Michelle shoot against Instructor Zero. That would just be that oh, would that would be a dream come him. true. I I, I agree. I agree so too. Yeah. And uh, now my duty weapon that I carry uh, was also uh, a couple of my cop buddies uh, recommended it. And then I talked to John about it. And John was like, "This is definitely where you want to go." Is I carry the Glock thirty four uh, for my duty weapon for go. when I work and. Glock is a Glock, man. You can throw it out a helicopter. I mean, you go on YouTube and watch videos. You can freeze these things in ice. You can put them in mud. Glock is shooting. No matter what happens, Glock will fire. So That's what right. would you personally suggest? What, what, what were you saying you were looking at, Jeff? It was the SIG P365XL. Uh-huh. What's your thoughts there, Doctor? Okay. So so uh, just so you know, Nick, I, 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 um, I don't mind the SIG 320. I actually have one. And and it's a game gun, and I, I do like it. It's it's I'm a SIG guy too. The reason why I, I, I'm not and I'm not really a Glock guy. I'm a what works guy. So if it comes to me fighting for my life or winning a pistol match and like that, every time I press that trigger, I want it to go bang. I want to know my gun is going to go bang, no matter what. If I'm in dirt, if I have blood on it, if there's grease on it, if there's snow on it, I don't care. The gun has to go bang every time you press the trigger. And right now, the one who's best at that is Glock. So that's you. That's usually why I'm a Glock fan, and I push Glock on people who are interested in concealed carry. Now, Sig also have a great track record. They're, they're doing good stuff. The 365 XL is a is a great gun. I think the big thing for me right now, um, having shot so much, is that if the gun isn't red dot or optics ready, don't buy it. Buy buy an optics ready gun. And luckily, that little 365 XL is cut for a red dot. You can put a red dot on that gun. There's, there's two things I would recommend, Jeff, is, is that, number one, when you buy the gun, whatever, whatever gun, so you can't win a gunfight without a gun. You, you got to have a gun, right? So if it's too big for you to carry on you every day, don't buy it. If it's too small for you to shoot, don't buy it. You got to find one that you're okay with doing both. And, and there's two requirements for that. Number one, I have to enjoy shooting it, right? And then number two, I have to be able to have it on my body all the time. And I guess the third one is, is that it has to have things on the gun that make it proficient for defending my life. So having a red dot or having a flashlight on there, because you have to identify the target before you start breaking rounds off. If you can't get a flashlight on the gun, you, you, you got to have something at nighttime to be able to, it could just be the wrong guy at the wrong door. You know, it could be a drunk, you guys live in New Orleans. It could just be a drunk guy coming off the quarter, knocking on your front door because he don't know where the fuck he is. You know, you can't shoot him. You got, you got to be able to identify your target. So having a red dot and having a light and having it be the right size so that you can take it with you everywhere you go is a huge, it, it, those, those things are really important to look at when you're trying to buy a firearm. Well, let me ask you, what makes you such a big proponent for the red dot? Oh, it, it, once you use one, so when you first use it, you'll think, oh, this is hard. I just want to go back to my iron sight. But once you use it a couple of times, you'll realize how much faster you are. And you, you are seconds faster now when i say seconds a lot of people think oh that's not that much faster but a second in a gunfight is whether or not you live or die a second not even a second a half a second is is the guy who wins and and if if the red dot gives me that half a second i'm using it because i ain't trying to play fair in a gunfight i'm you i'm cheating the whole way through like i i want every single advantage i can get over the bad guy so i can go home to my wife and kids or my job or, or whatever and it, the red dot gives you that opportunity. It just puts you a, a little bit above what the, maybe the bad guy has. And lastly, uh, it brings it to the most sensitive topic of the of the evening and one that uh, it's kind of near and dear to my heart. Uh, 
Dr. John is right now currently in the greatest fight of his life. And I'll let John take it away and explain this Man, to you I, guys. I, to be honest, yeah, I, um, I had almost forgot about it. I was enjoying our conversation about fighting and guns so much that I had forgot about the the, the well, heart failure thing. Well, I'm, abso- I'm absolutely glad that uh, Jeff and I can sit down and talk with you and uh, bring some joy and uh, distract you for a little while. Yeah, it was a nice distraction. It, the heart failure thing was a weird thing, man. It was, um, I, it, it had been building up for years, and and I didn't notice it. You know, when you're younger, you don't, you don't, you know, when you're 25 years old, you don't think, oh, I've got heart failure. You just say, oh, maybe I trained a little harder than I should have today, or you know, uh, you know, maybe I didn't sleep well, or or you know, if I kicked this bag too hard, my leg hurts. You you, you make excuses for stuff, and uh. It just built up to the point where about two months ago, um, I was in the gym and I was trying to kick something and I was trying to put my shin guards on my legs and I couldn't, I already have kind of big legs, but I couldn't get the straps on my shin guards around my legs. They just, there wasn't enough Velcro and I hadn't put any extra weight on except for maybe on my stomach, but my legs shouldn't look like that. And, uh, I went home and, and uh, they hurt really bad and I started pressing on them and I, I realized I had some edema in my legs. And, uh, I had a friend come visit me that weekend from gladiators, one of the other coaches. And I, I hung out with them and then they left on Sunday and I was like, I, I should probably go to the hospital. I was having chest pain and, uh, I was getting really sweaty and something was up. I didn't know what, I just thought maybe, maybe, uh, you know, I had been unhealthy and, you know, they just needed to look at me and, and, and maybe it was something simple, like your, your vitamins were off or your. You, you know, you, you weren't taking care of your kidneys or something like that. And you're a little bit of renal, acute renal failure. No big deal. Something that would clean up. And, uh, I sat down, they, they, they stuck the EKG on me and, and, you know, as a doctor, I looked at it and I immediately knew it was wrong. And, uh, it went all down, downhill from there. It was, uh, they came in and they said, you have, you have some scary looking things here. You know, you should probably call some family if you have to, and maybe get them here and, and uh, we, we're going to bring you over to the CCU, which is a cardiac care unit. And they did a heart cath on me, which, by the way, is the most – I thought getting hit in the liver. Nick, I know you've been hit in the liver before. You know how much that shit sucks, right? Oh, yeah. It's the worst pain in the world. It puts you on your knees. Well, I thought that was kind of the worst pain you can get. Having a heart cath done, whole new level of stuff. Like, it hurt. So it turned into a big hematoma. It was not fun. So, so what exactly and, uh, is that test? What does it entail? How do they, how do they perform so that? What they do is the heart. The heart was having trouble pumping, and they needed to figure out whether it was the heart itself that was having trouble, or if it was because the blood vessels around the heart weren't giving the heart enough blood. And the way that you do that is you you go down into your groin right next to your balls, and they cut a hole in your femoral artery, and they feed this big tube up your your femoral artery into your heart. And they put you under uh, basically with an x-ray machine, like a live action x-ray machine. And they inject dye into your heart through these vessels to make sure that the vessels are clear. There's no strictures in there or, or anything like that. That's cutting the blood flow off to your heart. In order to do that, they got to cut your femoral artery. And I'll tell you, they don't really, you're awake. The other thing is you're awake through the whole thing because they got to tell you when to breathe. So your heart gets the right expansion and stuff like this. So you're awake the whole time. They just numb you up a little bit. Well, the numbing medicine, they must have put in the wrong damn spot because I, it, I felt everything from start to finish. And oh, it was man. one of the few times in my life that, like, I came close to passing out from pain. And that's never happened to me before in my life. It was like, it was that close uh, for me. It was, it sucked. It was not fun. <laughs> yeah, I can't <laughs> it was imagine not that. Fun. It was And you're awake for the whole, you can feel them putting the cord up inside of you. And, and uh, it was, it was, 
Yeah, it was awful. And you're alone. I was alone at the time, and and you, you know you already got news that your heart's not working right, and now we're gonna shove some something up in there and, and look at it and it's going to hurt. And it was, uh, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it, it wasn't fun. So after that, it was, it, my carotid arteries were fine. So the, the, I didn't even need to do the damn test. Um, and then they did an echo and all that stuff. And they found out that my heart was, so say your heart, each, uh, your heart fills up with a hundred milliliters of fluid when it's expanded. And then when it pumps and it squeezes, um, you get what's called your ejection fraction, which is, how much of that blood actually got squeezed out of your heart? So your initial volume minus your 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 end diastolic volume when your heart has finished squeezing. Traditionally, most people can kick out between 55 and 75 percent of the fluid that's in their heart. So if they start with 100 milliliters and they, they get a normal pump, um, they'll have 35 to 25 milliliters left in your heart. My heart was at 20 percent, which means that if it filled up with 100 milliliters it would still leave 80% of the fluid in your heart and not get pumped out to your, to your, to your body, which is really bad. Like an ejection fraction of 20% is usually what we give. We find people who are in hospice or like end of life facilities who are in their eighties or nineties or something. And they're in the hospital. And here I was at 36, not thinking anything of it. And uh, that was pretty scary news. So in order to get out of the hospital, I had to, they had to give me a, a, a defibrillator. Because what happens to someone who's in heart failure like this is you get what's called sudden cardiac death. Where I could just be talking to you guys and the, the nerves around my heart will get stretched out and break or inside my heart because my heart's so big. Or something will just happen inside your heart where it just stops. And that's it. You croak. That's, so you have to wear a defibrillator 24 hours a day, all day long for three months. And that's that's where I'm at now. So what is what is, what is, what is the prognosis? What is the what is so what what do we think is going to happen? What is the best case scenario? I get a they do an echocardiogram. I mean, yeah, an echo of my heart every what, one month after I I get out of the hospital, and then three months after. And if it hasn't improved above thirty five percent, I have to have a defibrillator implanted into my heart itself. And at that point, I can no longer run a gym. So, like, the, the whole worst thing about this is that I was set to sign a lease on August 21st in New Orleans to go open my own gym. And all this stuff happened on the 3rd or something. And that was it. But they were like, no, you're out. We don't ever shoot guns anymore. Never mind. Go do jujitsu and Muay Thai and old pads and spar and all that stuff. So, on top of being told you have heart failure, you lose everything that you were working for for the last 10 years. And uh, so, that was, that was a hard, hard feat there. So. The prognosis is dependent on what my echocardiogram says. So, so my ejection fraction needs to go above 35% to not need a defibrillator. And to be considered normal, I need to get up near 60. If you can't get up, up above 35, you need, a, you need your defibrillator. And then within four or five years, you need a transplant in order to survive. So what, are, so what are you doing now to be able to, or is there anything that you can personally do to actually get yeah, your heart so up to those the medicine levels? That, the medicine that they gave me has helped a lot. So I'm on six or seven different medications, but, uh, and they've, they've had some positive impact. They've had some good impact and, and I need to, and I, I've seen you, I'm sure you've seen the post on Facebook, but I, I go running twice a day, not really running, kind of light jogging. I do probably eight miles a day, every single day, just to get my heart rate up to a certain beat point to keep my heart strong and try to make the muscles stronger again, because somehow they got weak. We don't know how, it's completely idiopathic. No one knows how it started. We just know it started a long time ago, and it just built up over time to the point where it's just de what's called decompensated. Your heart 
got so bad that the rest of your body, all the mechanisms that we have for someone who has a bad heart just kind of gave up. They, they had been overworked too, too much. So they just kind of gave out and the heart was like, okay, someone needs to come help me now. And that's when I went to the hospital. So I was so lucky to go in at the time that I went in. Because if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't have seen this December or January of next year. It, w- it would have been it would have been quick. So you're kind of in the uh, in the waiting process right now. So when do you go I'm back in, the, in for I'm your in next the waiting test? Process. Correct. So I had my first echo and it showed some improvement. So I'm hopeful that the the second and the third ones will will show even more improvement and hopefully uh, pray to, to whatever God you pray to that. Um, I won't have to get this defibrillator implanted in me because once they implant that defibrillator, it's, it's, uh, you're in big trouble. You can't, you can't, you don't get better at that point. You kind of just maintain. And I can't take any shots to the chest or be around like the guns. And when they're, when they're going off, that can mess up the, the electronics and the defibrillator. So that would be a huge life change for me that I'm, I'm I really am really hopeful that that doesn't happen. But the, the medication order, to be on it, is super expensive. One of them is 600 bucks a month, just one of them. Oh, wow. But I know you have a. Uh, you can go ahead. You can go, go ahead and give out that information uh, right now. I know you have a uh, have a page set up to, so that anybody listening it, that that wants to go ahead and help Doctor John. Uh, I know. I don't know if you. I don't know if you still got shirts or anything. I personally got one of the uh, Save Doctor John shirts. Uh, if you have anything <laughs> like that, still you can uh, put put a, how they can get in contact with you. Shirts. Yeah, the GoFundMe page is on there. It's just Save John's life. Save John Marino's life. You can, can search it. It's real easy. Um, and then I also, it's on my Facebook. If you guys want to add me on Facebook, I, I, I'd love to, as more friends I can get on Facebook, I, I'd love to see you all, especially if I can beat this and, and go open a gym. I was going to go open a gym called, um, be the change gym over in, in, in New Orleans. That's still hopefully going to be the plan. Hopefully I can beat this heart thing and, and then come over there and, and open a gym and, and start changing people's lives again. Well, we interviewed AJ Fletcher a few weeks back and he gave us the GoFundMe link. We posted it on the website. I just shared it again on the Fight Sport Focus uh, Facebook page. So if you've got uh, anything else that you can tell our listeners, any other way that they might be able to help yeah. spread awareness. Uh, no, no, so you just look up heart failure and learn some stuff about heart failure. But really the, the, the goal, I guess, is to get better so I can go open a, a gym in New Orleans and really help people um, change their lives. I think the kind of, the kind of plan that I have for a gym, which I was really excited about was, uh, was going to be really fun and, and help a lot of, a lot of people. It was called be the change so that uh, we lead from the front. So if you wanted to fight from the gym every other Sunday, you have to go out and do charity work with me. So we go to like a, 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 a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or a vet center and teach Muay Thai or even an old, old person home or hospice and just be nice people and lead from the front. And uh, I thought that was going to be a really big thing. And um, I'm, I'm hoping we can still get there and make some world-class fighters and also help change the world a little bit. So I'd like to live for that. So if you, if you want to help me out and help me get to there, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> uh, absolutely guys. Uh, <clears throat> But guys, I really, I really appreciate you coming on, John, uh, telling your story. Uh, John's lived a pretty amazing life, and we want that life to keep on going. John's touched a lot of people. Uh, most people that you talk to that talk to John is, I mean, he's a great guy. AJ speaks very highly of John. Tyler speaks very highly of John. I personally speak very highly of John. Uh, I love John. He's like my brother. Uh, when he comes in town, he stays at my house. Uh He's my guy. So I personally have vested interest in him. I'd like to see him around as long as possible. And I'd like to see him beat this thing. Yeah. It's, it's a really weird situation I find myself in because I, I even, you know, Nick, uh, that well, like one of my big life kind of mottos is to give more than you take. 
and uh, I spent the last 36 years giving as much as I could to as many people as I could and, you know, doing private lessons for free or coming to coach for free and just trying to help as many people as I can um, because we don't have much time on this planet and I want to make people happy, you know? That was Jeff's and, motto uh, too when he was... Thing. That was Jeff's motto too. When he was banging his way across Eastern Europe, he was trying to yeah. give the world more of a population. <laughs> more, more than he take. Right. He, he he has a tattooed on his back. Give more than you take. <laughs> well, look. It's really strange to be on the other side and be asking for help now. It feels really. It's very humbling and uh, it's a strange experience. Well, John, thank you so much for being here. Please keep in touch, and we're here for you, man. Uh, anything you need, never hesitate to ask. Yeah, man, I'm going to make a trip out to New Orleans here soon, and I'll come see y'all. Absolutely, man. And definitely uh, keep us uh, updated with uh, what the progress was going on with you, and we'll keep Fight Sports Focus uh, Universe updated with that as well, man. John, we appreciate you coming on, man. I love you, brother. Thank you. I love you guys too, man. I'm happy to be here, and thank all the fans for listening, and uh, hopefully uh, you found this fun. And I'll see you soon, maybe one day at, at the gym, if I can beat this thing. I'd love to have you all around. and see everybody in new Orleans again. I'm, I'm looking forward to being back. So. All right, John, man, you have a good night, brother. You too, man. And we will be right back uh, with our picks for UFC fight night. Marias versus Sanhagen. Welcome back to the Fight Sport Focus podcast. Jeffrey Hoffman here with Nicholas Sherlock. This week, we stay put on Yaz Island and the UFC. It's looking to clear the clutter in the upper ranks of the Bantamweight division as it hosts UFC Fight Night Marias versus Sanhagen. That's this Saturday, October 10th. Kicking off the main card, we've got Yusuf Zalal versus Ilya Tapuria Zalal is the minus 185 favorite, made his way to the UFC through the LFA. Topuria making his UFC debut and 8-0 undefeated. However, I'm taking Zalal. I am taking Yusef Zalal. Zalal it is. Next up, Tom Aspinall. He's the largest betting favorite on this card. He's a minus 400 against UFC newcomer Alan Bodo. Um, Bodo is a French fighter fighting out of Japan. French. Uh, he's a French people don't fight. Come on now. <laughs> he's a well, not aren't sent. you a teacher? You know, history books. French people don't <laughs> oh, fight. Oh, here we Stop go. Stop this nonsense. Say just the French Canadians. They're right. the only ones that have any fight. Hannibal, Hannibal Burris uh, tells uh, that old joke. He said he was uh, he's doing a comedy in France and he's at the McDonald's counter. He's ordering and he said, these guys came in. They look like legitimate gangsters. And he says like, blah, 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 French. He was like, <laughs> I couldn't even take him serious. I just turned around like, man, stop it. <laughs> well, look, uh, Bado enters this as the uh, with the better record. He's eight and one compared to Aspinall's eight and two. However, uh, Bado has fought primarily in Japan and South Korea. Maybe the level of competition that he's faced uh, not up to par. And Bado comes in with a uh, Bado has the slightly better record. But he's a serious underdog in this one. I'm going with Aspinall. I'm going to go with Tommy Boy as well. Tommy Boy. Third up, we've got Marcus Perez versus Dris, uh, Drykus 
Duplessis. It's very rare that you stumble on a name. You're really good at that. Man, these guys. I know I fuck <laughs> these guys' names up every single week. So <laughs> this card, a lot of guys making their debut or uh you know their second appearance so we've, we've got a couple names here that we're not super familiar with a couple guys that i had to dig in do some research duplessis is the minus 145 favorite um duplessis taking on marcus perez perez started out 10 and 0 in his career got signed to the ufc but he's gone two and three since dreykus making his uh ufc debut uh, and he's entering this fight as the favorite, made his way to the UFC by way of uh, KSW, and uh, he's 14 and two. He's won 10 out of his last 11. And get this, in 16 professional fights, Duplessis has never been to a decision. I'm taking him. Nick, what do you say? So this is one of the few fights that I actually kind of knew who Marcus was. Just because I like the way he spells his name. This dude spells Marcus with a K. Marcus with a Well, that could be the icebreaker. Every time you meet somebody, it's like, hi, I'm Marcus with a K. And then, like, you've already made that bond. That's right. He's at the speed dating thing. He's like, is there a fucking K in your name, dude? He's like, he's like, yeah. So I'm going to take Marcus with a K Perez. Yeah, and I, I think this is the only matchup uh, on the card that you and I are differing on. Which, you know, this is where heroes are going to be made, right? That's right. Your opportunity to make some progress, my opportunity to pull away a little bit. Yeah, so this fight, I mean, because I I don't know what the actual numbers are. Maybe you can give us those numbers on what we are total right now. Because I know, what, like two weeks ago, I took a beating. Yeah, oh, they're not looking good for you, bud. And then uh, last week, we both took another took another l yeah i didn't even put that one in the on the list it was just one we we, we both went oh and one that can be our mulligan <laughs> mulligan <laughs> next up we've got uh, ben rothwell taking on marshine tybura both of these guys are riding two fight win streaks i think rothwell has faced the tougher competition in those two fights uh he beat stefan struve and ovens saint prue i'm going with rothwell i'm gonna go with old big ben rothwell all right co-main event we've got uh, what looks to be an awesome matchup, Edson Barboza taking on Makwan Amir Khani. Uh, look, we know we all know Edson Barboza uh, amassed a record of thirteen and one. Since then, he's gone seven and eight in his last fifteen, and most recently, Barboza's on a three-fight skid. He's lost five out of his last six since twenty seventeen, and uh, even though Makwan Amir Khani enters this fight. As the sizable underdog, he's still a more than game opponent, even for like a very desperate Edson Barboza. Barboza minus 260 favorite. Amir Khani is the plus 200 dog. This would be a great opportunity for Makwan to put the Barboza feather in his cap and to call out another named and ranked opponent should he win. I think Barboza is going to see this man. I think Barboza knows this is crunch time, knows this is the last shot. If you want to be here, coming all the way from Harris Casino in New Orleans yes. to the big show in the UFC. This is his time, man. It, it's either win or you're done. Like, yeah, it, it, dropping six fights in a row, you're getting cut. Like, yeah. there, there's, an argu- there's no argument to keep you here. All right, Barboza on a three-fight skid. He's lost five out of his last six. They have been some close fights, and they have been against uh, really good opponents. Uh, Donald Cerrone, Tony Ferguson, Khabib Nurmagomedov, Justin right, Gaethje. Right. So uh, I'm yeah, going with Khabib, Barbosa. Khabib absolutely mauled Barbosa. He was talking to him. Just give up. <laughs> but I got Barbosa. I'm sorry, brother. Head. I don't want to hurt you. Just give up. <laughs> and in the main event, 
We've got Marlon Moraes taking on Corey Sanhagen. I texted you about this earlier in the week. I said, how is Sanhagen the favorite in this fight? It's, uh, it's I, I don't know. I mean, I like Marlon. I like Marlon a Marlon lot. Marlon is a great fighter. And the, uh, what's he lost? One or, one or two fights? Uh, in the UFC, I think he's five and one. Yeah, I mean, he's and who did he lose to? Uh, Mighty Mouse? No, it was, oh, Rafael Asuncao. That's not Rafael. a bad guy to lose to. <laughs> yeah, but then he came back a couple fights later and uh, and and avenged that loss. Avenged like, loss. I, I, I really like Marlon. I think Marlon's going to take this fight. I think Marlon is on another beeline to another title shot. Yeah, and look, here is something just to consider. Uh, all right, so Sanhagen's the younger fighter. It looks like he's got the momentum. He's got father time on his side. But just some food for thought here, okay? Corey Sanhagen's record, 12-2. and two. Marlon Marais is 18-2 and two in his last 20, right? So big edge in experience. Um, again, I don't see how Marais uh, is the underdog here. We had him at a plus 115, Sanhagen the minus 145 favorite. I'm going with Marais as well. Nick, what else do you have for us, man? I mean, that's pretty much it on the weekend. Uh, <clears throat> I really don't have nothing going on this weekend. I'm going to watch those fights a little bit, maybe hang out with the kids a little bit. Maybe. Might have a storm coming through. Maybe. I mean, I think it's going to keep turning, so I'm not, not really too worried about that. I mean, we're out of the direct path where we are, so, I mean, uh, I guess uh, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and uh, prayers, they, man. They stop storms. They go a long way. A long, long way. I mean, I'd hate to see Lake Charles take another hit, but it seems like that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like New Orleans that year. They took Rita and Katrina. Yeah, tough, tough hurricane season for central Louisiana, yeah. western Louisiana. No local no local fight scene. Uh, we have some next weekend? Next weekend, we've got Empire Fighting Championship Empire. 6. Empire. Uh, it's going to be October 17th from the Biloxi Civic center in mississippi and we're going to talk more about that card uh next week's episode nick i i think that about does it i think, think that about does it. eighth book eighth episode in the books close the books next week another big episode another big guest with mr aj the ghost fletcher will be with us next week and we can't wait to talk to this man this guy is the is the uncrowned king of louisiana he will be the next guy to catapult to superstardom he's got a fight coming up november 7th on atlas for uh i believe it's going to be that welterweight title uh so definitely looking forward to that uh that card is going to host it's going to host a plethora of louisiana guys with uh scott o'shaughnessy mm -hmm. is uh, fighting on that card justice lampers is on that card yeah old brandon thug passion thug a bears passion. uh rescheduled fight is on that card uh it's going to be another great card on the yep. gulf coast all right, guys, don't forget, follow us on all platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Fight Sport Focus, and visit our website, fightsportfocus.com. New episodes are dropping every week, so subscribe to and share this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Googles, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hoffman, and this is Nicholas Sherlock. Thanks for listening.